Hello and welcome to Postcards from a Rock and Roll Tour, the podcast, episode 7. I'm recording this on New Year's Eve 2022 and as this podcast goes live tomorrow on January the 1st 2023, a very happy new year to everyone listening and a huge thank you for listening. We now have something like three and a half thousand listeners. We're an official Apple affiliate podcast. And as of this month, Amazon are featuring postcards from a rock and roll tour in Canada in their hidden gems category, no less. None of this would have happened if no one was listening. So again, thank you very much to you all. And if you're a first time listener, please do click on the follow button on your platform of choice, as this helps more than anything. Also, if you're a first-time listener, a brief recap of why we started. As we all know, the pandemic resulted in the lockdown and the music industry, my industry, was shut down completely, resulting in all musicians' incomes effectively stopping dead in their tracks. The effects on my little universe resulted in the West End show I was regularly playing in closing, and my band, Go Now, which delights in performing the music of the Moody Blues, had all 80 shows for 2020 cancelled, including a 30-date tour of America just a few days before we were due to fly. In an effort to keep moving, I started driving for Uber, hence the subtitle of the podcast, From Rockstar to Uber Driver and Back. So, this podcast started out about what it was like to be a musician in these turbulent times. Whilst I'm still driving part-time for Uber, mainly and genuinely because I enjoy it, the rock star side of things is making a slow but steady comeback. Last year, the Go Now band successfully managed four separate trips to America, performing with the Omaha Symphony, three nights with the Philadelphia Pops Orchestra, one night with the Nashville Symphony, and the final trip, a show with the Buffalo Philharmonic. Great gigs, one and all. In this podcast, we also touch on the meaning of music and the huge mental health benefits that it brings to all of our lives. If you listened to last month's podcast, I talked about our upcoming trip to the US this March, where we're playing with the Fort Wayne Symphony in Indiana on March the 4th, and how we should have had more than one gig for that trip, and if we were going to get any more, you'd be the first to know. Well, we did get some more shows booked in through a genuinely dynamic and ambitious agency called T2, run by two gentlemen, Terry Davis and Tim Flackerty, out of Phoenix. So, I'm delighted to announce that we're playing at the iconic Egyptian theatre in DeKalb, Illinois, on Thursday the 2nd of March, the Midland Theatre in Newark, Ohio, on Friday the 3rd of March, the Fort Wayne Symphony on Saturday the 4th of March, as I mentioned, and the Marcus Performing Arts Centre in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, on Sunday the 5th of March. Boom! as my kids say these days. If you can come to any of these shows, please do. And if you do, please DM me or text me and let me know and come and say hello after the show. Now, whilst these Go Now shows are amazing, I have to tell you about a phone call I received recently to play a gig which turned out to be an absolute highlight of the year. Before I do, though, and to put it into context, I have to mention how incredibly lucky I have been with music. 
And the first stroke of luck, the first game-changing stroke of luck, was my parents getting divorced when I was six years old. Stick with me for a minute. I'm going to circle back and this will all make sense. Promise. My dad, who I like to say, uh, collected empty bottles. Sounds better than being an alcoholic, doesn't it? Well, he left my mum, my brother and me and went off to Vietnam during the war as a volunteer medic with the Quakers. I promise I'm not making this up. It really did happen. He redeemed himself slightly in later life, but back then, in 1967, he did the best thing he ever could by leaving. The reason being is the only place we could go to live was with my grandmother. This was the amazing stroke of luck that changed my life forever. My grandmother, or Nana, had a small three-bedroom council house in Nottingham, which she shared with my auntie Mary. So, when my dad left, me, my 18-month-old little brother Robert, and my mum rocked up with all our belongings in the back of a van, moved in, and lived there for nearly six years. It just so happens that my Nana was an extremely enthusiastic and very effective music teacher. And on day one, she began giving me a one-hour piano lesson every single morning at 7am before school, followed by a one-hour piano lesson when I got in from school. Every single day, seven days a week, 365 days a year for six years, including Christmas and holidays. In fact, so passionate was my Nana that on non-school days, the morning and afternoon regime was extended. The thing was, I didn't actually know I was having piano lessons. It was just something that happened in my life. So, when I turned up at high school, aged 11, I went into my first music class. The teacher asked if anyone played an instrument. Quite a few people put their hands up and they were asked which music grade they were studying for. Because in the UK, there are eight grades before you would go on to take a degree. Now, I wasn't being taught the piano for grades. But in one of the huge piles of music books scattered around the piano had grade seven written on it. So when I was asked what I played and what grade I was on, I said, piano, grade seven, I think. Grade seven, you think, said the teacher. Uh, well, I haven't taken a grade yet, but that's the book on the piano at the moment. This prompted a click of his fingers and he pointed at the piano stool in the classroom. Come and play something said David Wilson, the music teacher, who incidentally became a mentor of mine later in life. I'd never actually played in front of anyone prior to this impromptu performance, other than my, my brother, my mum, my nan and auntie Mary. So I sat down at the piano in the classroom and played one of the Bach 48 pieces to an audience of about 35 kids. Now, it's not that I was some kind of musical genius or concert-level pianist, but the sheer amount of hours I'd spent playing the previous half-decade meant I sounded well ahead of the game. David Wilson asked me to stay behind after the class, and he got the other music teachers in to listen to me play. And for me, I remember it as being the very first time in my life when I felt special in a really good way. As it turns out, I was probably better at playing the piano at age 11 than I am now because my mum got married and we moved out of my Nana's council house. So I started going to actual piano lessons with a teacher. I joined the school band on clarinet and eventually sat behind a drum kit at age 15 and decided I want to hit an instrument with wooden sticks rather than blow down it or caress it. The simple fact is that my Nana is the reason I'm a musician today.
If I ever wanted to stop practising, she would gently kiss the tips of my fingers and say, I'm putting a skill into these that no one can ever take away. And one day, people will pay money to hear you play. It's making me emotional just thinking about it. The first time I played at Wembley Arena with the Moody Blues was the very first time I ever took a bow at the front of a stage. Before that, I'd done a thousand gigs in pubs and clubs and orchestra pits. But when I took that first bow, as I bent forward, I said aloud, thank you, Nana. It's something I've always done and continue to do to this day in all the concerts I play. Whenever I get to take a bow, I lean forward and I always say it. Thank you, Nana. Incidentally, and completely separately, whilst it never occurred to me to ask at the time, when I was around 15, I found out that Auntie Mary wasn't actually my auntie at all. She was my Nana's lodger. Nana didn't have the heart to ask her to leave when we all moved in. Anyway, circling back, as I promised, to the phone call I got to play the gig in December, which made me feel very lucky. It was Sarah, a music teacher in my street, number 61 since you ask, and she wanted to get a group of musicians together from the street to play Christmas carols in her front garden for the whole street. So, in early December, I find myself round at Tom's house at number 77, who plays the tuba, and we rehearsed about ten Christmas carols, with Tom on tuba, Sarah on flute, me on piano, and about five kids of varying ages and ability playing trumpets and violins. I can't tell you the thrill I got from being able just to turn up and play. When we kicked off, it sounded like you would expect a group of local musicians from 6 to 60 would sound. Bloody marvellous. I posted a picture on the street WhatsApp group and Sarah announced the lunchtime performance due the following day. We all dressed up in Christmas hats and the kids had tinsel on their instruments and there were mince pies and being handed out and photocopied paper with the words on it for a surprisingly large audience. And it was the most enjoyable time I've had playing since I can't remember. No pressure, no musical director, no agent just people getting together to play, sing and listen to music. It really did strike me, and this happens a lot these days. Music makes you feel something. It alters your state. It elevates your mood. The phrase sex, drugs and rock and roll was put together because all those activities alter your state. And rock and roll in particular became so powerful due to the timing of the rock and roll musical revolution. In the 60s, and in America in particular, it was ground zero for what is now considered the new renaissance of modern music, rock and roll. There were so many baby boomers, bigger venues called arenas were built, which required bigger sound systems, creating a massive sound and augmented the energy. The shared experience of thousands of people all in the same space listening to their favourite artists is as intoxicating today as it was in the 60s. There's also a curious and very significant difference between the 1960s rock and roll musical revolution and the previous periods of artistic change. And that's because it wasn't led by schooled musicians. It turns out that the type of regimented music education I had can actually hamper creativity. Some of the most inventive artists I know don't even read music. 
They use music as a vehicle for expressing themselves, as opposed to musicians like me, who were taught the technicalities first with no real personal creative element involved. For instance, none of the Moody Blues actually read music. Ray Thomas didn't know a major scale from a pentatonic scale. However, he became one of the world's most lyrical flautists, recording the most famous flute solo in pop history purely because his fingers were not taught to press down specific keys. Even Paul Bliss, who joined the Moody Blues on the same day as me and the keyboard player of the Moody's for 17 years, didn't read music. Paul and I were in a hotel room once on tour with a keyboard working on something or other, and I asked him about a song he'd written for Celine Dion. He said, oh, that middle section is just part of a descending minor scale, and he played it. However, I knew he wasn't playing the right notes. That's not a minor scale, I said, and I played him the correct notes. No, Paul insisted, it's this, and he played his version again. I can assure you you're wrong, I insisted. Oh, well, the notes I chose are the melody of the song. The point I'm making is that my minor scale, the correct one that was given to me by a theory book, got me a B in my grade five theory exam. Paul's minor scale got him a hit record with Celine Dion that paid for his house. Graham Edge, the original drummer with the Moody's, hadn't even heard the word paradiddle when he recorded Nights in White Satin. Graham enjoyed 50 years at the top of the music industry without any formal musical education. It's not to say these musicians are not amazing. They are and they've created songs that have changed people's lives. It's rather their lack of formal education made them creative musicians, whereas I'm a recreative musician. Something I'm totally happy with, by the way, as it allows me to recreate the music of the artists I love and admire with an expertise that I wouldn't otherwise have. Another contributing factor for the Moody Blues success in particular is all about being the right talent at the right time and in the right place. In 2023, there are going to be a thousand people a day turning 75 in America. In 1968, when the Moody Blues climbed to the top of the music industry, there were a thousand people a day turning 18. This coincided with FM radio playing the Moody's music in every car in the country, along with the baby boomers, of which there were millions, all buying the coolest thing at the time, a vinyl album. The Moody Blues sold over 70 million of them and secured their place in music history. My nana, teaching me to be a musician, started me on my musical journey, which coincided with the Moody Blues in 1990. And the Moody's and I sailed along in glorious harmony together for 25 years. Now, my Go Now band performs the music of the Moody Blues in a live setting, both as a standalone band and with major orchestras in America, and therefore continuing to alter the states of the audience with rock and roll, minus the sex and the drugs. The audience has to provide that themselves. When you think about it, rock and roll is the one enduring element of that trio of mood enhancers. Sex, which back in the 60s meant free or promiscuous sex, something my kids' generation think they've invented, must be modified as you go through life. And drugs, which may not have ceased altogether, have certainly changed. At least the dealer these days is a certified pharmacist. But music... Music is the greatest of all the mood enhancers. And if I have anything to do with it, you will have plenty of opportunities to hear this great music played live for a long time yet. 
My nana said, no one will be able to take this away from you. And whilst the pandemic appended incomes everywhere, I was still able to play Christmas carols in my neighbour's garden with the local kids. And I found myself saying, Merry Christmas, Nana. It was the thrill of the year. And with that, I have to leave you. A very happy new year to you all, and I really hope to see you at a show sometime. Dear diary, what a day it's been. Dear diary, it's been just like a dream. Woke up too late.